This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the journey to jointness still a work in progress at the Pentagon, and JADC2 keeping DOD leaders up at night. It's Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Two big names in the defense technology space have found homes in industry and the department could find it easier to build the systems it needs. Mark Pomerlow and Brandy Vincent are reporters for Defense Scoop. Welcome to both of you. Brandy, you first. How will the CHIPS Act impact the defense industrial base? At least what's the intention of the CHIPS Act? Welcome. Great to talk to you about what's going on. The final version of the bill that the president just signed provides $52.7 billion for American semiconductor research, development, manufacturing, and even workforce development. Of that, about $39 billion is included for manufacturing incentives. Um, of that included is $2 billion for legacy chips used in automobiles and our defense weapon systems, as well as $13.2 billion in research and development and workforce development. Um, and there's also $500 million to provide for international information communications technology. So semiconductors, and also some of our next generation communications technology as well. Um, It also provides a 25% investment tax credit for capital expenses for manufacturing of semiconductors and related equipment. So there's really some incentives there um, for them to be American made. Beyond all those financial incentives though, the bill also includes heaps of support to drive research and development in science and technology. A huge sort of focus um, President Biden has repeated throughout um, his tenure so far is a desire to bring the percent that we use of the GDP on science and technology back up to 2% as it was more in the last decades. This bill gets it a lot closer there. Um, For instance, it establishes a technology innovation and partnerships directorate at the National Science Foundation to focus on fields like chips and advanced computing, advanced communications and energy technologies, quantum information science, biotechnology, artificial intelligence. It also includes a number of provisions that will impact the DOD, including one to accelerate unmanned maritime system technologies, so unmanned water technologies. And then beyond that, there's a bunch of inclusions for other agencies like NASA, the Commerce Department, Energy Department, and NIST, which is actually directed to establish a program for artificial intelligence-enabled defense research. So a lot in there, um, and I'm really looking forward to see kind of how those provisions come into light. Yeah, there's a ton there, Brandy. You're right, and you get at the essence of what I think people in the defense community care about, and that is the chip in my phone is not the same as the chip in a weapons system. Do we have a sense yet of what the money that you talked about is being directed toward that weapons system capability will actually do, or do we not know that yet? It's pretty interesting. That was something, um, it almost surprised me because so many agencies uh, are covered in this act, but President Joe Biden specifically called out advanced and next generation weapon systems. He had mentioned going to a recent factory, um, recently going to a factory where javelins are being created. And he noted that 
the most advanced chips are not at all being made in America. And so he made a direct correlation to sort of impacting those companies that um, are building that. And, and I do see, think we'll see an impact on our weapon systems down the line. Brandy, great reporting as always. Uh, Mark Pomerleau, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Uh, you report this week on two former defense officials that are finding new homes in the private sector. This is not a new phenomenon, but it seems like we're in a wave of this now. Is that a fair read on my part? Sure, Francis. Absolutely. Uh, You're right that this isn't a new thing per se, um, but this is definitely a trend that we're starting to see where a lot of these companies are hiring uh, high profile uh, retirees from the Defense Department to help them really uh, better understand uh, contracting strategies and even in some cases win some contracts given their insight into their former organizations and expertise in in some of these areas that these contractors uh, are trying to break through on. Garrett Yee uh, recently retired as the Deputy Director of DISA and he's now General Dynamics Information Technology and David Spurk uh, not too long ago was the Chief Data Officer at the Pentagon and he's now with Palantir. Those people are moving Moving to companies where the skills that they had and that they used to be successful in the government will suit very well, seem to fit very well the missions of the companies that they've joined. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Dave Spurk, as you mentioned, you know, the formerly the DOD's first chief data officer, um, several of the contracts that Palantir um, is, is looking to, to bid on surround um, this notion of data, data centricity. Um, you know, one one, one uh, contract in particular that they're uh, vying for right now is uh, the Army's Titan program. This is uh, the service's next generation ground intelligence system, uh, which eventually is going to fuse a variety of different intelligence feeds to provide uh, a common operational picture. Um, that they're in competition right now with Raytheon on that on that program, and the Army is going to actually down select one of them. So uh, certainly an area where where uh, data and data fabrics are going to be uh, central. So um, surely as a senior counselor uh, focused on U.S. government international business, this is something that uh, Dave Spurk would would probably have a a lot of good insight into. Um, You also mentioned uh, Gary, former uh, two-star in the Army. Uh, GDIT is, is also focused on a variety of um, uh, uh, information technology and cybersecurity uh, contracts, both across the the government, uh, the civilian sector and defense sector. Surely, uh, with his portfolio at DISA and also um, within the Army's CIO G6 office, um, he'll have a lot of uh, really good insights uh, for pursuing some of those efforts as well. All right. Speaking of good insights, what good insights can we expect from you coming in the next week or so? Sure. So next week is the annual uh, TechNet Augusta conference in Augusta, Georgia. Um, Augusta is is the hub for Army cyber and information warfare or an Army parlance uh, information advantage. I'll be excited to hear from you know some of the top leaders in the Army on how the service is really putting forth uh, an effort on its forthcoming information advantage doctrine. Uh, this is kind of its take on information warfare, um, you know, separate from how the other services are looking at it. So, looking forward to hearing from some of those leaders on how this is is uh, uh, progressing and eventually becoming doctrine. Enjoy Augusta, and I hope you get a chance to get to the golf course while you're down there. Uh, Brandy, what's in your week ahead? 
Thanks, Francis. I am looking forward to hearing um, the Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Science and Technology, um, Ms. Barbara McCouston, speak later this week about um, all things emerging tech, AI, ML, et cetera. And I have some really exciting things in the pipeline for next week. Um, but right now, can't share exactly what it is, uh, but I will say I'm really looking forward to sort of filling you and our listeners in on that um, in the coming days. All right. Don't tell me or you'll have to kill me. Brandy Vincent, Mark Pomerleau, it's great to have both of you on the program. Thanks very much. Thank you. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. Leaders in the military branches see potential problems with how the Defense Department's coordinating work on joint all-domain command and control. The most recent leader to talk about it's the Air Force's Special Assistant, the Secretary of the Air Force, Tim Grayson. He tells Defense Scoop's John Harper the answer may not be coordination from OSD. Janice Haith is Strategic Client Director for the Department of the Navy at Oracle. She's former Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Navy. Janice, welcome. It's great to see you, my friend. What's your sense as you see what the services are doing individually on JADC2, your former service, of course, uh, working through Project Overmatch to contribute to, to uh, JADC2, Janice. What's that coordination ideally, do you think, look like so that all the services are pulling in the same direction at the same time? Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis, and it's great to be back. So actually, I, I have been talking to some people across the department about this. And so one of the challenges that we see is that because all the services are working independently, you're going to have you would potentially have a problem with information sharing and interoperability. And while I understand and most of us would all agree, establishing a joint program office, while that could be ideal, I think that's not the ideal anymore because of the cost to do it. But I do think that some oversight and guidance standards need to be developed, not just by DOD or OSD, but, but with the joint staff. Because at the end of the day, the combatant commander is going to have to execute. And so it needs to be a full-off effort of both <clears throat> DOD, which uh, D John Sherman's office, which develops the standards, but also the warfighter, the warfighter input and pulling it together. Uh, I thought that uh, Joint Staff J6 was going to do that. I know that uh, the new J6 is in, I guess she's in place, but I, I'm hoping that they pull something together to do that because I think if they don't, we're going to see an interoperability information sharing challenge. And you know I don't like to go, about, go back and perform forensics on these kinds of things and, <laughs> and try to figure out where we went wrong just for the sake of where we went wrong, but I did the first interview that I remember on JADC2 in 2016 or 2017. And so I'm wondering how we get five years in or longer and we're just now realizing, hey, these are three different programs that are working three different ways and we need to coordinate them when the promise and potential of JADC2 I understood from the very beginning, Janice. So, so the promise and potential are there. I don't think that's the issue. Right. I think when, when you did the interview before, I, I, I would say that it was right at the time of the administration change, right? So you have administration change, the previous administration with the one that just ended in the Obama administration. I would say that you are finding a challenge of trying to figure out competing interests. Where's the new administration's goals and agendas? What's the money going to be like? Because the budget, you know, is always a little bit in flux when you have a new administration. So I think those things combined is where it stalled and then it kicked back in and everybody started moving forward. But I think 
Well, I agree that they need to have, you, you need to understand the Air Force culture, the Navy culture, the, the Army culture, and I'm including the Marine Corps with the Navy, is that you still have to have the war fighting aspect. How do we fight together? And typically, and I always used to tell people, it's an Army-Marine Corps battle sometimes, and then it's an Air Force-Navy battle. So how does the air-sea domain work in this? And how does the ground domain work in this? And then where do they come together? Where is that, like, Venn diagram? You remember Venn diagram? Of course. Yeah, the Venn diagram. I think today what they need to do, again, is maybe John Sherman's office. They, they need to put together. You don't need a program office. You need two senior people to oversee it. Bring it together. Um, I'm going to go back into the acquisition uh, hat here and say have those um, roundtables, have those strategic uh, gate reviews and look at this from a collective of not just the budget, but the interoperability, the standards, the sharing of information. How do you get this executed? What's the cost going to be? How do you sustain it? All of those factors. And if they function in this three different entities, then that means you have three different budget lines coming together. You have three different standards, but at what point, who brings it together? And I think that's where DLDCIO and Joint Staff J6 could pull this together. I think that's what they could do. And the the benefit, it strikes me, to that will be that if everybody does what people normally do in the building, the Air Force will say, well, we should use the standards for ABMS. And the Navy will say, we should use the standards for overmatch. And the Army will say, we should use the standards for convergence. And everybody else should adopt what we've done. And somebody in the function that you just described can be King Solomon and decide how we split the baby, right? Right. And, and to, to some degree, I would say for the Air Force and the Navy, from an air perspective, those standards should be the same because, of, and I'm not being pejorative, but an airframe, an execution and how they do that, that should be almost the same. They're both, we both want like uh, airplanes, so they should have that. The ground is going to be a little different. And then obviously the sea is going to be different. But, if you know, nobody talks about the Coast Guard. And I was wondering, when are they going to bring the Coast Guard in this? Because in a time of crisis, the Coast Guard is part of DOD. So where do they fit into this and how do they fit into it? So I do think that they have to You pick a senior person on both of those two staffs, bring everybody together, do the reviews like a gate review or roundtable, however you want and start moving forward where they see the differences, figure out how to bring them and make them together so they work together. You can still have a difference, but if you can't talk when you're on that battlefield, you can't share information, then what good did this do? Yeah, that's the whole point of the whole thing. And the Coast Guard thing that you present is an interesting one because that adds another level of complication because they're not, I know they're on the network on the dot mill domain, but it's an entirely different agency. They're in Homeland Security, and yet uh, I saw a Coast Guard ship participate, at least one, participated in RIMPAC just the last couple of weeks. So right. they become more and more and more integrated into the operations of the Defense Department and the Navy and Marine Corps all the time. Correct. And, and when in peacetime, they're DHS, but in a crisis where they're called up, they belong to the Secretary of Defense. And so I think not including them at this point becomes a challenge. I think you need to bring them in right at the beginning so they have an opportunity. And then, you know, I know what part of the concern has to do with the budget that's going to go to Congress. And then they'll see this large budget line and they don't want it to be a target. But you have to present the story. You have to show them, here's what we're trying to do. Here's the end state objective. 
we can have three separate budget lines, but there has to be some commonality and, and parses accordingly. One of the reasons why people don't want the program office is because the cost of a program office. I mean, it's expensive. I don't think we need to do those anymore, not to the level that we've done them before. I think we can scale it back and you pick two designated DOD joint staff organizations to oversee it with dedicated people that work with the services points on those things. So you just named the forcing function in my view too. And that's Congress, the Armed Services Committees in, in the authorization process in particular, to say, no, this is how you're going to do it moving forward. Right. I think they have to engage. They need to step up. They need to say, while we agree or disagree about a program office, we want to see a enterprise budget and move forward so that we do have the interoperability, the information sharing. Those standards should not be the Air Force standards, the Navy standards, the uh, Army standards. They need to have standards that allow them to talk on that battlefield, to share that information. Because if you don't, I think you can see a loss of life. And that's the one thing you don't want. The J in JADC2 stands for joint. I remember that every time I have a conversation <laughs> with anybody about this. Janice Haith, it's great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. You can read more about JADC2 in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup of stars and sign up through the link in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The JADC2 program Janice Haith talked about a few moments ago is the core of the Defense Department's future fight. Major General Kim Kreider, U.S. Air Force, retired as former Chief Technology and Innovation Officer for the Space Force. In this conversation with Defense Scoop's Brandy Vincent, she explains why JADC2 keeps DOD leaders up at night. Because it's such a huge opportunity, right? We all see it. It's almost as if we can taste it, you know? It's like, yes, joint all domain, command and control leveraging all the assets that we have available to us in all the domains and being able to command and control them, you know, in the most effective and efficient way possible uh, to achieve, you know, our objectives is hugely uh, valuable. And it's such an opportunity uh, that we that we need to be able to do this. Uh, it would just give us such an such an advantage to be able to do this. We've made so many investments in all these all of these capabilities. We want to be able to maximize our ability to use them. Uh, so everyone wants to do this. We've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, we are so close. You know, the technology has come so far to allowing us to do this. The challenges that we have, uh, in some ways, they're technical. I mean. Not all of our assets can talk to each other. Uh, that's a fact. Uh, we don't have complete interoperability, although technology is helping us figure out ways to do that uh, and you know, to make those translations, to have more open interfaces between our systems uh, and to be able to apply capabilities like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to better orchestrate um, and optimize the, the availability of certain assets to do certain things across a variety of domains. So we're absolutely getting there and the technology has really come a long way to get us there. Uh, but you know, there are funding challenges. You know, we, we're not fully invested in the infrastructure uh, that we need to take advantage of these technologies and take advantage of these capabilities. 
uh, our networks are still very slow. You know, our ground-based networks are there. We still have a lot of legacy capabilities in place uh, and we've not been able to make all of the investment that we need to get the infrastructure that's required, the cloud-based infrastructure, the, you know, the very high-speed networks, the high-speed computing capabilities that we need to integrate and uh, pull together all of these capabilities and do it across all of the different domains. We've got different networks on the ground, in the air, and in space, and being able to pull all that together is going to take some investment. Um, and we've been investing a lot in phenomenal assets uh, over the years. Uh, and We've got the best assets that you can that money can buy. Now we have to invest more in the infrastructure uh, that it will take to pull all these assets together in a much more effective and efficient manner. There are organizational challenges. Uh, you know, we're not necessarily organized to to do that. We're organized still as kind of service level uh, stovepipes, if you will, of buying certain capabilities for the needs of specific services. And there are good reasons to do that, but we don't have good ways to have capabilities that can work across the services that are investing in assets for specific domains. Uh, so we need to work through some of those organizational challenges uh, that will allow for more of that cross uh, domain integration, cross domain capability uh, to be available and useful for all. Uh, those would be some of the biggest challenges. Um, and I think, I certainly think that there are ways to get through that. There are efforts underway to, to move in a positive direction. Uh, and we've got to keep experimenting. You know, experimentation is a big part of this because another challenge is we've never really done this this way before. We've always had individual organizations or individual services presenting forces and presenting capabilities into a joint operation. Yes, and we work and uh, integrate and train jointly as we would fight jointly, but we're bringing these assets in from these different entities and then figuring out how they're gonna work together versus doing that joint all domain design right up front. Uh, and that again, not just a technical design, but an, a cultural integration uh, from the very beginning so that we have that all the way throughout. How are we gonna do, no kidding, command and control with a set of joint capabilities uh, all the way through? And so, we're learning, we've certainly evolved, we're, we're certainly doing better than we've ever done, but we've got to continue to work through all of those challenges. Absolutely, um, just a quick couple more um, on there. It, whenever you were um, still at Space Force, do, did you see that it was seamlessly connecting with the Air Force's ABMS network yet? And sort of what were the challenges around um, kind of networking there, if you wanted to go a little deeper? Well, within the Air Force, you know, the ABMS Advanced Battle Management System um, from the very beginning started out as, you know, an air and space capability. Uh, ABMS Advanced Battle Management System under the Department of the Air Force uh, really had uh, Air Force. And then as the Space Force stood up, Space Force pieces to that. And even today, uh, Air Force and Space Force leaders work hand in hand in working through their contribution to joint all domain command and control. Um, and because the Space Force was part of the Air Force, right, before it was an independent service, but still uh, linked to the Air Force very closely as part of the Department of the Air Force, uh, there's a lot of linkages. There have been a lot of linkages over the years in terms of how our space assets would work uh, in collaboration with air assets to support ground based operations. Um, so it, it hasn't been a complete 
you know, a separate set of activities that have been brought together. Um, but, you know, there's still some of the challenges that I talked about. Uh, there's still some of the technical integration challenges that we need to continue to work through. There's certainly, you know, the need for infrastructure that can support that seamless integration. There's definitely the need for, you know, working together through that design all the way through the process uh, versus, you know, more, it, it, you know, once it's already employed, then figuring out how to integrate it uh, and interact in more of a joint um, command and control sort of set of functions. Uh, so we're working through that still. Um, but I would say that the fact that we had an Air Force Department level advanced battle management system gave us a starting point and it has given us a starting point to have more engaged conversations at the department level between the two services than, than, we, than we had been have, having with the other services. That's great, because that's part of the key to that. Um, and then last quick question on that, but I guess I could also ask it bigger picture with all technologies, but thinking about JADC2, do you think DOD has to overcome more cultural or technology related challenges to get there, or is it about the same? I mean, I, again, I think, I, I certainly think there are challenges on the technical side, but those, those technical challenges are, are very much workable. And with investment, you know, you can go further faster on the technical side. Uh, culturally, uh, there is definitely still the challenge of figuring out how do you call on assets from other domains and how do you employ the assets across other domains from an overall joint command and control, seamlessly integrated joint command and control perspective. We saw early on in the ABMS days, uh, the value of experimentation uh, and the value of you know, bringing uh, Air Force, Space Force. Uh, in the early days of ABMS experimentation, we were also bringing in some Army uh, assets uh, and you know, planning for and integrating in some maritime assets as well. But the more you could do of that, the more you could experiment with all the different service partners with their capabilities, with new technologies that would do some of that integration with the application of AI that would present different courses of action so that you could think through, oh, if I employed this asset here, then I could save that asset to do something else over there, you know, and giving those joint commanders those various options that they could work in. The more we could do that uh, through those kinds of experiments, the more we could look at what those opportunities are and what technologies give us the most bang for the buck and then what those cultural uh, needs are in terms of how you're going to make decisions in new and different ways, uh, how you're going to present yourself as uh, a joint decision maker with the availability to, to work all these different assets in a more seamless way, uh, and how you're going to work with those components uh, in a more seamless way. So working through that is going to be really important. And I guess overcoming the challenges, both culturally and technically through experimentation, is really the key. Uh, there are challenges on both sides. Probably culture is always going to trump everything else uh, because that's just the nature of, of culture. So let's do experiments. Let's let's work with these capabilities and let's work through both sides of that problem.
Major General Kim Kreider, U.S. Air Force, retired with Defense Scoop's Brandy Vincent. You can read more in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. Now, if you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast returns next week. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.